Warning, Home Truths is about real life, and real life can be distressing. Topics covered may include descriptions of domestic violence, sexual abuse, addiction, or mental health issues. Listener discretion is advised. A Podcast One production. I'm Wendy Searle, and this is Home Truths. Like all of us, my life hasn't gone according to plan, and what inspires me most is hearing the stories of other people, brave people, who face more than anyone could imagine, only to emerge not only stronger, but also full of grace and acceptance. These are the people I talk to in Home Truths, where everyday people share their extraordinary stories. Life is the full experience, it's not just the good. To really experience the riches, you have to be prepared to have the whole journey. From the outside looking in, Hedley's life seemed blessed. She lives near the beach, is loved by many, and has worked hard to become a successful author. But Hedley has her own struggles that others didn't see. And one night in 2015, Hedley made a split-second decision that would change her life forever. So it was just like any other night. I had made some plans to catch up with a girlfriend for a drink, uh, which we often would do. And uh, we met some other friends at the bar that we often go and just have a just one or two drinks at the end of the week. And we were having a great night. I was probably drinking a lot more than I would normally drink. And my friend ended up going home and I ended up going out with these other two friends of mutual friends of ours and I just continued drinking and I I allowed myself to get quite drunk. It was in the hours of the early morning of Saturday morning uh, when I realised I needed to go home and my friends put me in a cab and I just remember the cab door closing and just this l- loneliness kind of engulfing me. And this wasn't the first time that this kind of loneliness had had engulfed me. And I was 37 at the time. And I think I had started to have a lot more anxiety around the fact that I was single, that I didn't have any children, that I wasn't where I was supposed to be at this stage in life. And I think those thoughts were starting to creep in a lot more frequently. And to the point where I had gone to a doctor six months earlier and I had said, look, I'm just having some some anxiety, I'm having some dark thoughts, you know, can you prescribe something to take the edge off? And he prescribed a um, quite a large bottle of Valium. But he did did say at that time that I was only ever to take um, half a tablet or a ta- one tablet maximum just if I felt that the anxiety was just getting too much. So I had never opened the bottle, um, but it was just there as a, it, it, helped me to feel okay knowing that I could have a Valium if things were getting sort of too too out of hand in my head. So I came home that night, um, I was sobbing, I was upset and I was exhausted. Did the taxi driver notice at all that you were upset? To be honest, I can't remember. <laughs> I was probably not as uh, in that state to to think of what he was doing, but I certainly would, and perhaps I was hiding it um, as well. Perhaps I, I do remember getting home and just collapsing, 
And I think I was in my mind, I just, I was tired, I was drunk. I allowed my thoughts to go down to that place where I had often not let them go. Uh, and I just let them go there, which is, you know, I could just end this all right now. Like I just, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And I stood in front of the mirror in the bathroom and I think I'd had the thought that I could end this sort of that many times over my life and but it was only ever meant to be an idea it was never I was never obviously meant to cross the line and I think at this point I just went well why not like we could just end this now I'm, I'm tired of suffering I'm tired of being in pain I'm tired of feeling like I'm not enough that you know all of that and so instead of the eye makeup remover, I took out the bottle of Valium that the doctor had prescribed. And instead of taking one, I emptied the bottle. I did it very quickly because in my mind, I said, do it now, do it quickly. Otherwise I won't, I'll chicken out. Um, and so I did, I, I swallowed it and I was quite shocked at how easy it was. But it was after I had swallowed all the pills where suddenly uh, I had all the insights and the realizations. And the first thought that I had was, this is not my destiny. Um, this was not the way my life was supposed to go. The second thought was, this was not the, the legacy that I wanted to leave behind, which was I was suffering and I was in pain, but I didn't want to pass that pain on to others and then that to be my legacy, which is what I would be doing. Um, and then the next thought was, I'm in a lot of trouble and I need to call an ambulance. So I found my phone and I dialed, I, I later discovered I dialed 911, which goes to show how much Netflix I was watching. Um, I didn't even dial triple O and that, that's the last thing I remember. Uh, what was the scariest thing is that my life was now out of my hands, whereas I think I'd been keeping that thought in my back pocket that I could check out as a way to give myself power when I often felt powerless. But once I crossed that line, I no longer had any power. So my life was out of my hands. I realised that I wanted to live, but I realised I didn't have a choice in that anymore, that the outcome was out of my hands. I didn't know what was going to happen. Do you remember any last thoughts before you passed out? Was you fear, sadness, anger, or just a blank? When I was on the phone to the ambulance or the triple O, the emergency woman, I remember saying to her, I need an ambulance. And she asked for my address. And I remember this feeling of relief that she didn't ask why I needed an ambulance because I felt so ashamed. And I just remember being so ashamed by what I had done that I was, I was relieved that she didn't ask me why I needed an ambulance and she just asked for the address. And she said, well, we've got an ambulance on the way. And that's the last thing I remember. But I just remember being so ashamed that I'd done this. So I spent three days in ICU and then I was moved to the mental health ward and I think I spent about two weeks in hospital and, and during that time I met one of the doctors. I met three doctors, but I only remember meeting one. My memory was um, pretty messed up for a while. But he said, you do realise how lucky you are to be here. So obviously what I had done is extremely serious and I'd had these insights and, and um, most people who do what I did don't get the chance to have the insights and then have another go and get a second chance. Um, and 
so I was very aware that I had crossed a line. I was lucky to be here and I, I wasn't going to mess it up, which is what I said to the doctor. Like, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. And I also had to point out that I was the one to call the ambulance. Um, so I, I wanted to be here and going through that experience, um, it didn't fix everything. Um, and certainly the book, writing the book, helped me get back on track. You said to the doctor that this near miss made you certain that life is the point. I mean, I'm sure that he would have looked at you with quite a degree of cynicism. It was always going to be an uphill battle to convince the medical professions or a medical professional that um, I was fine despite having just attempted to take my life. I have to give all credit to this doctor because... I felt in that moment he was able to put his professional hat aside and speak to me as a human being. I remember the way he looked at me and he was looking me dead in the eye. I just knew in myself that I was no longer at risk. I just, I knew. But of course, he decided to give me the benefit of the doubt despite everything that I'd been through. After she called the ambulance, Hedley's memory gets hazy. It was only later that she was told what happened that night by a member of the emergency services. So what I learned is that paramedics can't, they can't break in. So they showed up to my house and saw everything was locked, but they could also see me through the bedroom window. And they saw that I was not only unconscious, but I was in a position that was, um, well, they didn't know, they just saw me. Um, but then they were gonna call the police so that they could the police could break in, but then they found an open window and thankfully they were able to climb in and then they were able to uh, work their magic and get me in the ambulance and get me to hospital very quickly. So I'd say all of that helped the fact that I was able to uh, still be here talking to you. Obviously I had many questions about the Friday night um, after I passed out, after calling the ambulance, I don't remember anything until I woke up in ICU three days later. So I had a lot of questions. Who found me? Where was I? What state was, was I in? But a guy knocked on my door um, a week after I returned home from hospital and uh, he seemed to know me, but I didn't know him. I quickly realised that he was the paramedic and I invited him in and, you know, thank you so much for saving my life. Um, I have, you know, my life. I owe you my life. And um, I did think it was strange, though, that he came and knocked on my door and I sort of said, why? Why have you come back? And he said a couple of things. Firstly is that I see this all the time. So I think the paramedics see this situation. They see a lot of attempted suicides. They see a lot of suicides. And because it's not, we don't talk about it because the chance of it causing other suicides, it's this incredible epidemic that's occurring in our community. Absolutely. It's it's very much under the carpet. We we want to talk about suicide, but it makes us uncomfortable as well. But the paramedic, um, he said to me when he arrived that he saw me and, and I didn't fit the criteria of people who attempt their life. And, and I, I'd, I'd say that's perhaps, I don't, I don't know, he sees a lot of drug addicts and, you know, people who are really absolutely down and out, whereas um, he couldn't quite work out why I had done it. Perhaps because you're a person who looks from the outside extremely successful and in control of your life. Mm. So the profile of what is someone of who has depression, who has those issues, it's not something how you represent. I do present a certain image, which which is perhaps part of my downfall in, in a way. That's part of my coping mechanism is to make it out that, yep, no, I've got everything covered, I'm fine, 
you know, don't worry about me. Um, and perhaps he saw that, but he he was curious as to why I had made that decision. And then he also had, uh, he wanted to return papers from my dresser that he had mistakenly thought was a suicide note and um, quickly realised that it was actually the outline to an erotic fiction novel. <laughs> so he felt he needed to return it. Or perhaps he wanted to date. <laughs> I'm not sure, actually. He was quite cute. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, perhaps that wasn't the right setup for a... <laughs> a long-term relationship. <laughs> yeah. He, um, but it was very lovely for him to come over and for me to be able to thank him um, and he was able to answer some of my questions and... It was a very confronting meeting. When you first awoke, you heard the voice of your mother? It was actually the nurse's voice that I uh, heard telling me that my mother was here. And again, I just remember the feeling of embarrassment and shame. Was that, uh, I do remember that very clearly. Uh, and, and it's probably why I didn't tell many people about what had happened, that after I came back from hospital, only my close friends knew. So... It was five months after coming back from hospital and I felt better in myself, um, but I still didn't have the answers of, okay, what am I going to do with my life? I'm still single. I'm still childless. You know, I still don't fit into that. What am I going to do? And it was too big to think future-wise years in advance. And I was reading this book at the time by Cheryl Strade's Wild, and she was talking about all the difficulties that she'd gone through and she decided to walk across the two US states along the Pacific Coast Trail and she, she wrote, I wanted to walk my way back to the woman that my mother raised me to be. And I just thought, wow, that sounds fantastic. I'm, maybe I need to do something like that. And for a second, a very brief second, I thought about walking across Australia and then I thought, well, there's no way I'm doing that. <laughs> but I did feel like I needed to set myself some kind of challenge to get myself back to a, a sense of belief in myself and just, just to somehow get me back on track in some way. And I thought, I need to set myself a challenge and do something consistently over a period of time. And that's when I thought, gosh, I haven't been writing. I haven't written in a long time. Perhaps I could uh, set myself a challenge of writing a certain number of words every day. And it was the 31st of July, um, just before midnight. And I thought, okay, I'm going to write 2,000 words for the next 31 days of August, not really realising what I was getting myself into. And I, I set some guidelines because I knew that I have a way of getting around rules and breaking them. And so I set myself some very specific guidelines that I was going to write 2,000 words for the next 31 days. And I, I then committed it to paper. I put it on Facebook. This is what I'm doing. So my family and friends knew. But they didn't know the reason why you were doing it? They didn't know the reason, no. Some did, but most didn't. Uh, and then I woke up the next morning and uh, I began. Hedley, suicidal thoughts are common and so many of us experience them, particularly when life gets big and ugly and relentless. But the majority of us don't carry them out. We actually follow through the pain. And for those who do attempt suicide, there often is a, a reason or a cause behind it, such as depression, a history of mental illness. Were there any warning signs for you? The scary thing about that event was there were no warning signs. However, uh, I have since in the last couple of years been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, of which depression is a symptom. Uh, and I've also had depression in the past and there was sexual abuse in my history and there was, um, you know, so there were, I certainly had the 
um, the ingredients for it. But what chronic fatigue does is it means that if there are a number of stresses in a row in a short amount of time, you don't have the reserves to cope with it. And I realised that uh, certainly on that Friday night, there were just there were a few stresses that had happened in a short amount of time that I didn't have the emotional capacity to deal with. So I just went down very quickly because with chronic fatigue, your nervous system is just constantly on and there's there's no way of, um, of backing up. You're just you're constantly in that sort of fight or flight where your nervous system is. So I knew it wasn't depression, but I knew, but I have had sort of elements of depression, um, but there was certainly no lead up. However, I, I say that it was a split second decision that was probably 30 years in the making. But for those who love you, your family and your mother and your friends, there were no triggers, no warnings for them to circle you with love and keep you safe. No, there there wasn't. Um, however, in saying that my family and friends knew that I was a, a risk factor because I had so often spoken about the thoughts that I was having and that and they could see that I would go down quite quickly and I'd you know and I'd I'd, I wouldn't just go down, I'd, I'd sort of go into that dark space. Um, but as I said before, I'd often had the thoughts, but I'd never act on it. And even in my own mind, it was never supposed, it was never a line I was ever going to cross. It just would make me feel better to know that I had the choice. And one of the insights that I had after swallowing the pills was the whole point of carrying this card around that I could always check out, I actually realised had been the cause of my suffering because you cannot have a truly fulfilling life when you've got one foot in and one foot out of it. And I realised by carrying this kind of metaphorical card in my back pocket that, you know, if ever things got too hard, I can check out. That had been the one foot out that I'd been living with. So I was never going to be happy. I was never going to feel the, um, the fulfilment that I longed for as long as I was giving myself an out. So after I was in hospital and I, I recovered from the attempt, I realised to live fully uh, and to give myself the best chance at happiness, I had to be two feet in, which meant showing up to life with the good stuff and the bad stuff and that things that there are going to be shitty times, but checking out is not an option. What you went on is a pilgrimage. And I think pilgrimage has been part of your life. You're talking about the pilgrimage of writing and really digging down into you to find out what the right way forward is. Uh, I, I feel as though life is uh, kind of made up of these little pilgrimages that we all go on. And for me, that's just as a writer and a storyteller, that just resonates for me. And I felt that this was a pilgrimage because I was starting at one point and I was heading to a an endpoint and so in in that way it felt like I was going on this creative pilgrimage and we think of pilgrimages as that we've got to travel from you know here to some other country or we walk over these mountains and whatever but all this it's it's actually we can have these journeys within ourselves. and certainly for me uh, on this one I didn't have the energy to go too far so I would get up every day and I'd walk the the coastal path from Bronte to Bondi or uh, Bronte to Clavelli, uh, Coogee 
And so many things would happen to me on those walks. I'd bump into people, I'd have conversations. And part of it was about re-engaging with the world again after being very insular. It was part of this journey was about actually getting out in the world, talking to people, connecting with life, nature, people. And that was very healing as well. And then coming back and writing about it. So so looking outward rather than looking inward yeah. and also the importance of doing that with a goal in mind. It was very important to start looking outwards again. And as a, I would say I'm probably more of an introvert. That's that's something that's quite challenging. So the writing helped me to do that. So I, I could go and extend myself outwardly for the purpose of my writing. So it, it just, I sort of, the writing, if, if it was just to go out and connect for the sake of connecting with people, I don't think I would have done it. So the fact that I had a goal to actually use those experiences to inspire the 2,000 words that I would write every day that helped me to go out um, and connect with people. Not that I realised it at the time. I think hindsight's a wonderful thing and, and being able to look back on our journeys and actually connect the dots. And often when we're in something, we can't connect the dots because we're, we're so in it. Um, so Right Way Home enabled me to connect the dots of my journey. And one of the things I realised is that life is the full experience. It's not just the good. You, you can't have the full experience if you're just wanting the good. To really experience the riches, you have to be prepared to have the whole journey. Uh, and for me, that was something that I didn't realise. I think when things got bad or things got tough, that I couldn't handle it or deal with it or that wasn't what, you know, that's not what I signed up for. But in fact, life is the full expression of experience. And so still to this day, it's like when things get tough, I I now know I can write my way through them. I don't have to check out. And in fact, that's not even an option because you cannot live a fulfilling life with one foot in and one foot out of it. You have to be two feet in. One of the other things I realised after that experience, the doctor had asked me a question can you think of you, anything that you were doing differently in the lead up to the decision to end your life? And at that time I couldn't answer him, but it was a few months after returning home from hospital and I had started writing Right Way Home and I realised that I hadn't been writing in the year in the lead up to that event. So writing has always been my outlet. It's my solace. It's where I go to process my thoughts and feelings, to understand the world, to make sense of some of the nonsensical things. And I hadn't been doing that. So there was a build-up. Uh, and I realised through what I had done and through writing Right Way Home that writing or creativity was my medicine. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm in danger of, of myself in a way. Writing helps me find that loftiness again. So <laughs> certainly I will feel differently about something after having sat down and just had, you know, half an hour with the notebook, I will always feel just a little bit better, um, if not a lot better. We need more than ever to value that need for some kind of time to ourselves to recharge, reconnect, and I, I think some kind of creative engagement. So, so even if you know you're a wife and a mother and a, a full-time worker or whatever it is, that still there needs to be that time that we have to ourselves to engage with creativity or our spiritual life. And I think in the Western world, that's where we're lacking, as opposed to, say, in Eastern cultures. They value spirituality. They value that connection to the invisible, to the unseen, far more than we do in, in Western culture. So I would say 
people are not going to go and do what I've done, but I would say um, perhaps they could carve out, you know, maybe five, 10, 20 minutes um, to play the piano, to paint a picture, to draw, to knit something, to engage with that creative process that I think is is who we really are because I think that we're inherently creative beings and when we connect with that, we're touching something very true within us. So if we can find time to walk the dog, if we can find time to go to the gym or if we can find time to make lunch boxes, it's important to find time to actually be creative. I, I would even put it as um, most of our lives are outcome-based activities or made up of outcome-based activities. So making lunch, walking the dog, going to the gym, there's an outcome to that. And where I see the value is that there needs to also be some time for non-outcome-based activities. So creativity is a non-outcome-based. So it can be outcome-based, um, but certainly in this realm of healing and rediscovering that connection that so many of us are lacking, it comes through a non-outcome-based. And that's a really difficult thing to spend half an hour on something that looks as though it has no purpose to anyone or anything other than ourselves is a really difficult thing for a lot of people to do. But the benefits of doing it are so great. And the importance of not being self-critical. Because if you can't paint but you want to paint, just paint. Absolutely. But I can already hear um, people going, oh, yeah, but that's just selfish to, to paint for no reason or to, you know, when I've got three kids to look after and dinners and lunches to make, you know, who am I to take half an hour out to, to do something that looks as though it has no purpose? Um, and yet... I feel that as a society, we would be far more compassionate, empathetic, um, emotional, kind of connected people if we allowed ourselves to engage in a creative practice more often. How much of your healing was in the hands of others and how much of it was in your own hands? It was definitely a two-way thing. So I, I feel that ultimately it was up to me to heal and that I wanted to heal, um, but I also had to reach out for help and that was something that I needed to do. I had to ask for help. So ultimately it was up to me to heal and I realised that no one could do it for me as much as I would have loved them to. Um, and even though, say, medication is really important and, and therapy is important, they're external factors and I felt for me to heal for the long term, the healing had to come from within. So I could use medication and therapy to hold myself up for a period of time, but ultimately it had to come from within and it had to come from me. And that's where I think creativity needs to play a bigger role in our healing um, of these illnesses because it does come from within. And as a society, we can facilitate that a lot more. We could, If we valued creativity a lot more, um, we could, I believe, have greater success in the healing from the epidemic with suicide and the attempted suicides that we are currently seeing. How are you different now to the Headley of February 2015 on that horrible Friday night? The Headley today, she's still single. She still doesn't have kids. <laughs> but I can tell you the acceptance around that is and, and I think anywhere late 30s to 40s is when you don't have kids or a marriage or, you know, the things that we're considered we're supposed to have at this age, when, when you don't have that. It can be a difficult time for people. But these days I'm just so much more gentle 
with myself and with that this is my life path and we all have it and you could be married and have kids and you could still be in a lot of pain and suffering and everyone has their something that they're dealing with. And I think I now have a lot more empathy for myself. I have a lot more empathy for other people and I realise that nobody's life is perfect. No one has the perfect life and, and there's no quick fix to pain and suffering and, you know, having a guy or having kids in your life, that's not going to be the, you know, that's not going to make everything okay. There's going to be challenges that come with that. So I'm just a, a lot more at peace with myself and where I'm at in life. And now I have the goal to enjoy the experiences that I'm having. So if I'm out with friends, my goal is to be present with them and enjoy the connections that I have with them. And then if I'm writing, my goal is to just enjoy that process. And then if I'm angry or I'm experiencing something, then my goal is to allow that to be, knowing that that too will pass. So I'm just a lot more at peace with everything. I think you should be because... Looking from the outside in, often from the inside out, it's we may have those extra things that are marriage or children, but with every addition comes other fears and griefs and it just becomes a new normal mm. from which you have to work through that life journey. Mm. And I think one of the biggest lessons I received in the book was there was this day at the beach uh, and I was sitting on the beach. I was on my own feeling sorry for myself because I was sick and looking around at all the families and the couples and everyone looked to have this amazing life. And what was interesting in that process is that the imperfections of that life started to show, started to show through. So this little boy came up and started yelling at his mum, going, Mum, Mum, when are we going? And then there were these other kids down the beach who were um, playing a joke on their mum and she just looked exhausted. And I just looked at all of these people who I thought had this perfect life and I'm there looking at them going, actually, it's not always what we think it is and it's, it's not a healthy or a positive thing for me to just assume that that person has something that I don't have or that person's better than, you know, it, it, it sort of gave me a different perspective on things um, and a healthier perspective that we all have our challenges. Headley has a beautiful life, blessed with friends and creative talent, but her story is a reminder that loneliness can be our most reliable companion. And when combined with alcohol and fatigue, it can become our most mortal enemy. Headley confronted this combination one night and emerged alive and grateful for the second chance. And through writing her way back home and encouraging others to gently create what makes them happiest, she continues to focus on staying away from the dark places and enjoying her own splendid life. Home Truths was presented by Wendy Searle and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production and music by Matt Nikolic. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au. Download the Podcast One app or search Home Truths on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to receive a free notification each time I release a new episode, hit subscribe. And if you would like to get in touch and share a story of your own, email me at hello at wendysearle.com. That's wendy, S-E-A-R-L-E dot com. 
Podcast One. If any of the issues in this episode have affected you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Lifeline provides all Australians experiencing a personal crisis access to a 24-hour crisis support and suicide prevention services. For a list of more specialised resources, please visit www.puckerup.com forward slash help and that's spelt P-U-K-A-U-P dot com forward slash help.